This class is, again, talking about um, military principles, specifically how to bring uh, joint operational environment like Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, all of that, to bring them together as a team so that when we're doing maneuvers and that kind of thing in the military, we actually can be effective. And the, the intent is to take that same thought, that mindset of joint team, oneness, unity, as a concept and bring it into the church and understand how we as a church can kind of use those same principles and ideals, um, obviously tailored and looking at it through the lens of scripture to see how those play together. Um, operational mass is one of the things that the military teaches. You, you have to consider mass as being effective, being able to bring your forces to bear in an effective manner. And so in the old days, the thought was you would take a lot of people together. Uh, you could see this in uh, some of the Civil War um, battlefields. They, they just brought hundreds and hundreds of troops together and they just kind of put them mass to mass and just let them duke it out. And that was a, that was a concept way back in the day. Uh, today it's a little different. Mass has a whole different meaning in today's environment because we have different ways of fighting. But to put that in point and give you an illustration, there's a phrase called, we few, we happy few. And Shakespeare coined this phrase a while back, and he took it out of, let me make sure I get this right, Henry V is the guy who is attributed to having made this, uh, this statement on St. Crispin's Day back, back in, 19, in uh, 1415. So Friday, 25, Friday, October 25th, 1415, there was a battle at a place called Agincourt in France. The French had... Uh, let me make sure I get this number right because it was a bunch. The French had uh, 50,000 foot soldiers, cavalry, uh, men on, on horseback, etc., cetera, uh, crossbowmen, archers. They, they had a massive bunch of people. The, the English only had 6,000 men. But the English had something called the longbow. And the longbow was something that the French hadn't really played with. They didn't know how the longbow worked too well. But the English knew how to use it and use it effectively. So the French go into this battle knowing they've got 50,000, a 10 to 1 superiority in mass, and they can absolutely crush the poor English who have no hope of this fight. If you've ever read the play or seen the, the, uh, the, the battle that goes on, it's a complete disaster. It is a slaughter of massive scale with the French losing badly. In fact, the French lose so badly that they barely are able to retreat um, with a third, I mean, a third of their men are just left on the battlefield. It's that bad. So what happened? The, the play explains that Henry V gave this wonderful speech. And in the speech, he said, we few, we happy few on this battlefield are going to achieve victory. And that speech is said to have inspired his men to accomplish things that you couldn't even dream of. I mean, a force of 6,000 against 50,000 and being able to, to just wipe them off the field is unheard of. And Shakespeare kind of romanticizes that and gives this speech. But what happened was the English knew how to use something called mass. And the longbow was the key to that particular mass, enabling the longbow to achieve that victory. Because it enabled the, the English to do something that shouldn't be able to be done. So how do we do that today? Well, if you think about little small things, nitroglycerin. Anybody know what nitroglycerin is? Little small vial of liquid, right? 
But if you use that properly, that little small vial has a massive impact on how things do, on, on, on digging and dredging and, uh, and de demolition and that kind of thing. A cell phone. Everybody has cell phones, right? Kind of a small little device, right? Back in the day, nobody had any idea what mass media on the battlefield would do. Suddenly you move forward to today, and who watches fights in Ukraine right now brought to you courtesy of the cell phone? You don't have to guess what's going on. You don't have to read a report. You don't have to listen to the news. You can actually pull up on YouTube and see eyewitness account of somebody with a, with a cell phone on the battlefield getting video of what's going on at the day. That has a massive impact on how things are done today. It changes the way people think and the way people fight wars. So for the church, what are some of the things that we have that are small, tiny even, but yet can have a massive impact on what's going on? People, okay. How about bringing that down? What's even smaller than people? Okay, prayer, but I mean, people is big, right? People is a large number. What's the smallest number of people we can have together? Two. Anybody know a, a particular verse that kind of has where two or more are gathered? Okay, that's the concept. People actually even as few as two people can have a massive impact when we put our mind to it. That's on the ability to make things happen. What are some of the negative things, the little small things, but have a negative impact on the church? Divisiveness. What are some of the things that can cause division in the church? Misunderstandings. Can misunderstandings arise over small things? Okay. So we're starting to see that small things that have massive impact can be used for us to help us do good things, and it can be used against us. So as we start looking at mass and we start figuring out how things work and how you can have massive impact, I want us to start kind of considering that mass and having a massive impact doesn't necessarily have to be a large number of people or a really, really big thing that we can all get our heads wrapped around. Sin. How big is sin? Huge. Sin can have a huge impact. Does sin have to start big? Little things. Okay, there we go. Sin has a massive impact, but sin starts as this small little thing, right? Like the, like the mis misunderstandings that we were talking about earlier. Little things, unfortunately, can grow to have these massive impact kind of things. Does Satan understand this? Does Satan use that against the church? Absolutely. Okay. So we have to be on our guard to understand that we can have massive impact by using small things, but we also have to understand that Satan can use small things against us. So Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 5. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, 
Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have, not taken, we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of the thoughts, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you, not re why do you reason among yourselves, because you have brought no bread? Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Okay, I want to take this apart a little bit. Who are the Pharisees and Sadducees? Religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders. Are they the same, or is there a difference between them? There's a subtle difference between them. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees weren't necessarily cooperative. They, they kind of didn't get along. But they had one thing in common. What was that? They hated Jesus because Jesus was a threat. Why was Jesus a threat to the religious leaders of the day? He was teaching something new, but why is that bad? Their power, yes. He was teaching something new that undermined their power. But wait, was Jesus teaching anything new? No, wait, 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 wait. I, I lost track here somewhere. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were the Jewish leaders of the time. Jesus comes to fulfill the Jewish customs, laws. He's the guy that the Sadducees and Pharisees should absolutely be putting on their shoulders and championing and walking around Jerusalem with, right? Why suddenly do the Sadducees and Pharisees have a problem with Jesus? They, he was disrupting everything that the Sadducees and Pharisees were teaching. But wait a minute, weren't the Sadducees and Pharisees teaching what God wanted them to teach? Oh, now we see a problem. The Sadducees and Pharisees had made small changes, correct? Why did the Sadducees and Pharisees make small changes to God's law? Because they knew they had the power to. That's the scary part. We have a gentleman right now over in Russia. His name is Vladimir Putin. And he is thinking all kinds of weird things that nobody can really follow. But there are a couple of things that we know for certain. He's doing things that the rest of the world really would rather him not do. But it's all because of how that particular individual is thinking. And that particular individual has an incredible amount of power over the Russian people. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish sect, or the leaders of the Jewish community in that world, had a tremendous amount of influence over their constituents. Be Oh, absolutely. Because now the Sadducees and the Pharisees have a common enemy. And that common enemy is Jesus Christ, because he is a threat to both of them. Right. And that was their, yep, sorry. And that was part of their problem. Yes. The problem was Jesus was bringing to them 
the real gospel. Jesus was bringing what God wanted people to hear. But the Sadducees and Pharisees had changed like leaven and bread, like leaven and in, in, in yeast, or I'm sorry, yeast is, is leaven, like yeast does to wheat, it changes it. It's just a small little change, but that change turns it from being basically flour into bread. That change is massive. That change pivots the authority from God to man, to a select few men. And that's what Jesus was up against. Satan had figured out, well, Satan knew all along, but Satan had already worked in that leaven to the Sadducees and Pharisees. Lot back, yes. They, uh, I think they also wanted to make a kingdom on earth while Jesus wanted to make one in heaven. So then there was a difference of, yeah. Ah, there's another difference. The men wanted a kingdom on earth. The Sadducees and Pharisees wanted their kingdom here. Why? Power. Control. A whole lot of misunderstanding God's word. And to be able to use God's word to ensure they maintain that power and control. Okay? God's word is an incredibly powerful tool. And when we use it correctly, we can generate massive results. When Satan uses God's word against us, it can have equally massive results. So as we walk through looking at the, the doctrine and how it goes back to this concept of taking something that is God's word and changing it just subtly, we also have to be concerned about where did it originate? Where was the first time Satan twisted God's word just a little bit? Genesis, Garden of Eden, exactly. Did Satan make a big whopping lie? No. He just, he just made a slight little change, right? And Eve, unfortunately, fell for it, and in the process of Eve falling, so did Adam. And so Satan knows that he doesn't have to use a complete whole cloth lie to create the impact that he's after. Slight changes, just subtle little inconsistencies can make things happen. All right, what is, what did Jesus preach? There were two things Jesus preached. Love, who first? Love God and love your neighbors, right? I mean, when you boil it down, that's really the two simplest of things, right? If you have that spirit in you, if you have the, the passion of loving God first and loving your neighbor as yourself, is there a, a really good chance that you're going to mess up or have you got about 89, 90% of it right? You got it mostly right. I mean, even Jesus says that the, on these two things, hang everything else, hang all the rest of the principle. So if we take that thought, love God first, don't put anyone in front of God, including yourself, and love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, there are some that say you need to love your neighbor more than yourself. You need to put those needs of those around you ahead of the needs of yourself. If you follow those two rules, is there a chance that you're going to end up in the boat with the Sadducees and Pharisees? No, because the Sadducees put themselves in front of God first. 
because they wanted the glory and they wanted to give God kind of the, eh, well, God told us this is what we're going to do, but this is what we're going to say that God told us to do. But second, did they put fellow man above themselves? Absolutely not. And so we can kind of use this litmus test to see if Satan is trying to introduce sin against one of those two particular pieces. So Satan is going to try to get us to either A, undermine, love God first, or B, love your neighbor first. Because if you put yourself in either of those two positions, Satan can cause small things to have big impact. Okay, so let's go back to Old Testament real quick. Judges chapter 6, unfortunately this is a case where God has everything lined up. In fact, God knows the principle of mass well enough to know that man has a tendency to think of mass in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own perspective. Remember back in the days of the Civil War and you had to get these large number of troops together and you marched big numbers of troops against big numbers of troops. Well, that's what happened back in the day of Judges as well. So listen carefully to how this unfolds. Judges chapter 6, starting with verse 15. So he said to him, this is Gideon, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest, and I am the least in my father's house. The Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So what's Gideon's problem? How's Gideon thinking? He's, he's thinking, I'm small. I'm a, I'm a small, I'm, I'm the least of my clan, and my clan is the least in the, of the tribes. How can we make this change? I mean, the Midianites are a huge problem, right? So Gideon is saying, I, we're, we're too small. How? He doesn't believe. Okay, that's the crux of the problem. God wants Gideon to have faith that God is able to accomplish this, regardless of whether Gideon wants to do or not. Does Gideon even need to be there? No. God is offering Gideon a chance to lead God's people to victory. That's an incredible, an incredible opportunity, right? I mean, that's like somebody saying, hey, I want you to star in the next Rocky movie. Okay, I'm going back a little bit, for those of you who know Rocky. <laughs> Okay, is that, I mean, that's massive. That's like one of the biggest opportunities in life. But Gideon is afraid. But Gideon overcomes his fear. Finally, God works on Gideon enough to convince Gideon that he needs to be able to step forward and do this thing. So Gideon marches forward or starts gathering forces. Judges chapter 7, verse 2, And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, Mine own hands have saved me. Okay, God already sees this coming, right? God, God unfortunately knows the mind of man. And he already sees Gideon amassing troops. What's God going to do? God's going to reduce the number of troops, specifically so that mass is not man, mass is whom? God. To God be the glory, right? I mean, our feeble minds understand that we have to have big things to do big things, right? 
That's how we think, because that's how the rest of the world works. Gideon slowly is getting this picture that God is able to do miraculous things. In fact, Gideon does pare the troops down, and Gideon with a few, we happy few folks, goes in and they wipe out the Midianites. And they all live happily ever after. Right? Isn't that what happens? No. Who's still playing on the battlefield? Satan, the devil. Does Satan give up? No. Gideon did what God wanted Gideon to do. Gideon found the faith to go to battle. Gideon found the faith to go in and, and take out the Midianites. But Satan, through just a slight change, just a slight twist, took something that God had blessed Gideon with and turned it into a curse. Judges chapter 8, verses 27. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, and all Israel played the harlot with it there, and it became the snare to Gideon and his house. What did Gideon fall victim to? Sorry, that was um, Judges 8, verse 27. There's, the rest of the story is, is before that, um, but it's, it's talking about um, Gideon making an ephod, basically um, a way to channel kind of God's wisdom. If you remember um, David, help me out, Ricky. David had the ephod, and he was able to use the ephod to, to listen to what God's word was through the ephod. But Gideon, unfortunately, used the ephod to do something else with, and that was he put it up in front of the city. Why? Why did, why did, Midian, why did Gideon put this ephod in front of the city? Pride. Hey, look what we've got. We, our city has this ephod. What did that create in the city? Did they worship God or did they worship the ephod? Ephod. The idol. There we go. Unfortunately, Gideon took something that was meant to be a blessing and turned it into an idol. And, okay, go back to God's word. What are the two rules? Love God first and love your neighbors. Did Gideon put God first? No. He lost sight of that. Gideon interpreted and, and, and internalized the effort as the means to achieve this great victory. And Gideon lost sight of what God wanted him to do because Satan put that snare in front of him. So we can always look to those two rules to test whether we have it right. Are we giving God the glory? Does God receive the ultimate glory of what we're doing? If we can answer yes, do we need to have a massive number of people to accomplish God's will? Nope. Two people. Where two or more are gathered, I am there with you. And even a single person, as Diane mentioned, even a single person has the power of prayer. So we can be alone and still have the ability to call on God. The challenge is we have to be willing to put God first in all things. When we do that, there's no limit to what we can accomplish. Unfortunately, in Revelations, the church at Pergamos has kind of fallen victim to this as well. Uh, Revelations chapter 2, 
starting at verse 12. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things, he says, he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So right off the bat, Christ is saying, I know who you are, you are holding faithful, you are doing the right thing. You, ha you, you have the right vision, you have the right goal, you have the right objective as we talked about in the first class. Your intent is to serve me. But I do have a few things against you, because you have there, you have there, those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who took Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols. Okay. We're going to get back into this idol worship business. Do idols have power? No. Are idols things to worry about? No, but yes. Okay. So idols are nothing, but idols can become something if we let them become something. Okay? This is where Satan gets in. And this, it's, it's the thing that drives us mad because as Christians, we know God's word is pure and holy. Satan should not be able to disrupt it that much. Yes. Hold on. Let me, let me get a microphone over to you. We got, we got some folks on Zoom that would love to hear the comments. With, with the idol thing, we should probably be asking ourselves sometimes, do I like this too much? Ah! You know, do I like the Baltimore Ravens too much, Brother Cook? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> okay. Do I like the Baltimore Ravens too much? Well, okay. Good. Good. <laughs> So, so here's the question. Can I have too much of a good thing? Okay, when does it become too much of a good thing? When God becomes less than first, there it is. That is it, is it such an easy test? It is really, isn't it? Do I love this thing more than I love God? Huh, no, I don't think there's a lot of things, but, but we have to constantly ask ourselves that. Because if we sit here rationally, in this class, and we're listening to, to me talk about all the great things that God has said, it's easy for us to get our priorities right. Amen? But when we're out, when we're wandering around and something is going on and, and I'm busy and I need to do something, it's easy for us to slip that priority, right? In day-to-day -day life, in the heat of the moment, our priorities can shift. Okay? That's when sin slides in. And we have to be careful of that, because when sin slides in, have we lost our faith? No. Have we lost our salvation? No. But can we? Yes. That's the part that Satan doesn't want you to connect. There's dots here. Satan starts small, and he starts connecting the dots until he gets it big. And if he can get those dots connected without you waking up and going, oh, wait a minute, what's going on here? I have lost my priority. When you come back to God, when you come back and you repent and you say, Father, I have sinned, I need to be forgiven. That repentance wipes that slate clean. Those dots get erased. Satan loses that fight. Amen? You are as clear and white as snow as if you were baptized yesterday. When you come back to the Lord and you repent, 
That's the piece that Satan wants us to forget. Satan wants us to take these small things and let them grow to become big. I'll continue with the verse in Revelations. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught you to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now remember, Paul had talked about idols and especially meat sacrificed to idols, right? He had given that example and he had said, look, meat sacrificed to idols is meaningless because the idol themselves are meaningless. And if everybody in the congregation understands that, is there a risk for eating meat, possibly sacrificed to idols. If everybody understands what idols are and everybody understands how that meat works, and the fact that sacrificing to idols is meaningless, then having that meat is not a big deal. What happens when one person doesn't understand that? That's a big deal. That one person who misunderstands can suddenly interpret, oh, the church is eating meat, sacrificed to this idol, therefore this idol has power in this church. Okay? Small connection, right? Sadducees and Pharisees, small connection, right? Just a slight deviation from the truth, but that slight deviation was enough to ultimately undermine everything they were talking about. And created such a rift that the Sadducees and Pharisees were the very vehicle to sacrifice Christ. Now, wait a minute, that's, that's kind of an irony. The Sadducees and Pharisees were the minions of Satan, if we want to take it that way. And the Sadducees and Pharisees were the ones who ultimately accomplished God's will on earth. Does anybody see the, the kind of irony there? Satan ultimately loses the entire war because Satan was after something that he accomplished through man. That's God's plan. Now, if you want to see something massive, think about God's plan. Are we able to cause God's plan to fail? No. God's plan is going to succeed. God's plan has succeeded. We're simply living through it. We'll get to that in, in another class, but the whole time thing, the fact that God's plan succeeded and, and we're just enjoying the ride, okay, that's, that's pretty cool. Don't lose, fact of the, don't lose sight of the fact we're actually just enjoying the ride. So when we look at God's plan and putting God first, we had the question, when does it become too much? When do, when, when do I like something too much? And that challenge is easily answered when I think about that more than I think about God's role in my life. Are we all part of God's plan? I see a few head nods, come on, help me out. Yes, we are all part of God's plan. Do we play a role in God's plan? Yes, do we play a big role in God's plan? Do we play a little role in God's plan? Don't know. Does it matter whether you play a big part or a little part in God's plan? No. Because guess what? It's God's plan. 
Is there, a, is there a spot in God's plan that's too small for us? No. Does Satan want you to think otherwise? Yes, there we go. Satan wants you to feel like you need to be on that stage. Satan wants you to feel like you need to be the star. You need to be the Rocky in that movie. Why? Why does Satan want us to do that? To get our focus off of God. Because when we start thinking about ourselves, who loses number one spot? If we think about ourselves first, who are we not thinking about as first? God, there you go. So Satan wants us to think about all the things that we should be doing and not the things that we could be doing. We should be doing things for ourselves. We should be looking after ourselves. Comment to the back, please. Yeah, that worked in the opposite direction to that. <clears throat> you know, you feel that you have a, a part in God's plan, but then you feel a calling to kind of go, you know, take more responsibility and go farther up and, you know, take charge of more. But then, you know, uh, Satan could be using that against you by saying, you know, you're just using your own pride to try and grab more attention for yourself. Amen. Is that not what Gideon fell pride to? Is that not what Saul fell victim to? The problem is God has amazing plans for everyone in here, big and small. Those plans have massive impact. Unfortunately, if we lose sight that God is first and God is causing those plans to happen and we are simply the messenger the ones who are making it happen, we tend to get focused on ourselves and what we can do. I mentioned Vladimir Putin earlier. Uh, his early days in the KGB, he was not a very important individual. I mean, he was, he was kind of an important individual, but he did not have the power that he wanted. And if you look through his biography, he kept trying to insert himself into bigger and more, more prominent roles until finally he got where, he, where he's at today. There's a lot of circumstance and, and happenstance and luck that put him in his place. But unfortunately, right now, Putin believes that he is where he is because of who he is, not because of the things that happened to get him there. And we're seeing the outcome of that. A person who has put themselves as the central point of making decisions and listens to no one comes up with some really oddball ideas and is capable of executing those ideas with thousands upon thousands of people dying and hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people becoming victims to his maniacal obsession. That's where Satan is maneuvering. Little small things that we in our minds start to take for granted or we start to lose track of things or because we, through human nature, want to take credit for, those are the things that cause us to have serious problems. Can we have those problems in the church? Is it okay to feel good about something you did to help others? That's not a big deal. It's not, it's not a problem to feel good about helping others. Unless feeling good about helping others becomes what? 
becomes the most important thing. I am the one who helped that person. Did I make a lot of money this year? Eh, I made some money. Here's, here's the problem. If I start thinking about that money as mine, do I have a lot of money? No. I was allowed to earn a paycheck. God allows me to stand before you and say the things that I'm speaking today. If I start thinking that I am the one who is helping you understand who God is better, I am setting myself up for a colossal fall. It's not me, ladies and gentlemen. It is not me at all. I have words that came from a book that I read, and it's the same book that you can read, and I'm hoping you're reading it as well. It's God's Word. I can only present to you what God is allowing me to say. Therefore, it is not me standing up here. It's simply God who is allowing me to be the words, okay? I've seen a lot of people that enjoy speaking, and they enjoy being in front of people, and they enjoy being in the pulpit, and that's great. The problem is when they take that to the point that that becomes their narrative. That's their position. It's their pulpit. Ladies and gentlemen, that pulpit would be occupied by a dog, a monkey, a chimpanzee, anybody that God wanted to put up there. He chooses humans because we speak English and other people understand English. The rocks can cry out and testify of God. That's not a miraculous thing. It's simply God's, God's design, God's plan. We are simply the blessings. We're the vessels that allow that to come through. And so when we say, we few, we happy few, we're echoing what Christ said. How many are going to find the golden gate? How many are going to find the way? A lot of people are a few. Few are the ones who find it. Why? Why can only a few find this, this wonderful treasure that God has bestowed upon all of us? Why can only a few find it? Because only a few are willing. Only a few are willing to put down all the rest of the world and allow God to be first in their lives. Can you inherit the kingdom if you walk in and say, yes, that is my chair because I earned it? No. Satan is going to convince you and Satan is going to convince the world that that's what you need to believe. And there's going to be times in your life where you're going to feel like that chair is yours because of something you did. Okay? That's, that's human nature. We as Christians have to be willing to say, that chair doesn't belong to me. God is allowing me to sit there, and if God decides tomorrow that I don't need to be sitting there, but I need to be sitting over here, I need to be willing to move. When you decide that chair is yours because of something you have done, you have lost your faith in God. Amen? Be willing to do what God wants us to do. That is what mass in the church is all about. Move where God wants you. Do the things God wants you to do. Put God first, and the amazing results are massive. Okay? And I know I'm getting a little preachy here, and I don't mean to. But I, but I want you to understand that that's the power of the Word. That's how God's Word moves people. So when Paul was talking about idols... And Paul was talking about how powerless idols are. What was the message? Is there something more powerful than idols? 
What is more powerful than idols? God. There we go. Can anything replace God? Okay. We understand that because we are here and we understand God's word tells us there's nothing more powerful than God. Is Satan going to try to change that? Can Satan really change it? Can Satan change our perception of it? Yes. The perception of who God is, is ours. Amen? We choose where we put God. And we choose what we allow Satan to talk to us and how he influences us. As we, as we work through things, like the church here in Pergamos, we have to be willing to reject doctrine and teachings and thoughts that put God somewhere other than number one. Right? So it's an easy litmus test. Does God get the glory for this? And am I thinking of my brothers and sisters more than I think about myself? Is that easy to recognize? Is it hard to do? Okay. You now understand the lesson. This is not a hard concept. Putting God first and putting others before ourselves is an easy test. But it is really, really challenging for us as humans to do because we are built in a miraculous way. God didn't put us in, a, in an impossible position. We can do all things through Christ, who gives me the strength. But the first thing we have to recognize is that strength is not ours. The strength comes through Christ. The strength comes from God. Okay? So, are we able to do great things? Yes! Amen! We are able to do incredibly amazing things. Understand that. Live it, embrace it, enjoy it. Do it, because God wants us to do those incredible things. But who ultimately made those things happen? There we go. Okay. That is how Mass works. Okay, and that's how the congregation can come together and stay together, because we all realize collectively, we are what God wants us to be. Just as we are individually, we are that collectively. Okay. Time's up. I appreciate everybody's comments. I was a little more preachy than I wanted to get. I'll get the microphones out next week and make sure that everybody has good comments and, and we can get them all out to Zoom. Um, but thank you again for coming out and enjoying the class, and uh, I look forward to seeing you next week.